Hello and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 72 called Wars of Religion. In the last episode, we talked about the Emperor Anastasius's Persian War of 502 to 506, which marked, unfortunately for the Romans, the return of that endemic conflict that had afflicted the 3rd and 4th centuries and would plague the 6th and 7th. However, Anastasius responded decisively and effectively, and the Persian Shah Kavad sued for peace. So all was well again on the eastern frontier. Unfortunately for Anastasius, this was not the case elsewhere, for a subject that had bedeviled the Roman Empire before took centre stage in Anastasius's reign, and that was a religious dispute over monophysitism. This became so serious, it actually led to a civil war and serious rioting in Constantinople, both of which threatened to topple Anastasius. But, Before we go any further, we need to understand what the controversy about monophysitism was all about, which is difficult to do living in the 21st century. Monophysitism for the Roman Empire in the 5th and 6th centuries was as serious a religious division as modern hostility between Catholic and Protestant or Shia and Sunni Islam. The controversy was about Christ, and in particular whether he was fully divine or both human and divine. Monophysite means in Greek monos, single, and physis, nature, so a single nature. For monophysites, Christ was divine and not human. This actually went against the agreement at the Council of Nicaea in 325, back in the early days of Christianity when the Emperor Constantine had tried to establish a unified church. One of the many things agreed on was that Christ was both divine but also human, and this became known as the Nicene Creed, which is still the position of the Catholic Church to this day. But in the 5th century, this view wasn't accepted by the powerful Egyptian church, in particular Cyril, the patriarch of Alexandria, who believed Christ was simply divine. Now, Cyril was also in conflict with the patriarch Nestorius of Antioch, the third big city in the Eastern Empire, who held the view that Christ was human before he was divine. So there was a broad spectrum of opinion about the true nature of Christ, with Nestorius at one extreme saying he was partly human, the Nicene Creed saying he was both equally human and divine, and the Monophysites saying he was purely divine. This dispute may seem arcane to us today, but the early Christians were very focused on the details of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And I think this was because a central conundrum for the early Christians was how an all-powerful God could be crucified. And so it's not surprising they had different ways of answering this question. Well, this divergence of opinion couldn't last long, and it all came to a head at the Council of Ephesus in 431, during Theodosius II's reign, when Nestorius was removed from his position and his views declared heretical. So, a big victory for Cyril, 
Indeed, the supporters of Nestorius fled to Persia, where they developed a separate church that ultimately spread all over Asia and even to China, becoming as big as, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church, only to be mostly destroyed in the 14th century by the Mongols when they turned to Islam rather than Christianity, although it was a close-run thing between the two. And some of the Mongol leaders were actually more favorably disposed towards Christianity than Islam. But all of that, as they say, is another story. Back to the 5th century, the Nestorians may have got the bullet, but it wasn't long before the Monophysites suffered the same fate. Their turn came at the Council of Chalcedon, convened by the Emperor Marcion in 451. There he turned against the Monophysites. Since the patriarch Cyril was now dead, anger was directed against one of his most vehement supporters, the Monophysite priest Eutyches, who was exiled. So, why was the Council of Chalcedon anti-monophysite, when probably most of the Eastern Empire's inhabitants were monophysite. Well, we have an interesting view from the distinguished historian Peter Brown, who regards the dispute between monophysites and Chalcedonians as the result of a power struggle between Constantinople, Alexandria and Antioch, the three biggest cities in the Eastern Empire, with Constantinople, the relative newcomer, needing to assert itself over its rivals. Quote, Compared with these ancient Christian centres, that is, Alexandria and Antioch, Constantinople, only recently weaned from a military Latin past, was a colourless newcomer. But to be a ruling city, it had to lead the empire in doctrine too. End quote. Constantinople might want to rule the roost, but the problem was that Alexandria and Antioch were still powerful. This meant that the Monophysites made a comeback under Basiliscus, who, as you will recall, during his short usurpation in 475 to 476, was a Monophysite who tried to reassert its authority in Constantinople, only to anger the capital's mob, which led to his downfall and the return of Zeno. The result was a compromise by Zeno in 482 when he issued the Henoticon, as we discussed in episode 69, trying to appease both Chalcedonians and Monophysites by, on the one hand, criticising Nestorius and Eutyches, but on the other hand, by remaining silent on the dual or single nature of Christ. This did work to some extent, but the underlying rift was still there. So now we're finally back to Anastasius. The problem was that he was keenly interested in theological matters and actually sympathised with monophysitism. He was also no doubt fully aware that most Romans in the Eastern Empire were monophysites, especially those in Syria and Egypt. And with a more militant Persia, the last thing he wanted to do was to alienate the clergy and populations of those provinces. But this created significant problems for him in Constantinople, which was staunchly Chalcedonian. We also haven't mentioned what was happening in Rome until now. Indeed, you may be forgiven for thinking that no one cared about Rome anymore, which was the capital of an old empire now ruled by the Ostrogoths and with a population a fraction of what it had been in the glory days of classical Rome. But think again. 
Rome was still important. Not only did it have the legacy of the great saints Peter and Paul and the huge basilicas built in their honour, but it was also a formidably militant church, uncowed by the Ostrogoths who left it a free hand to do whatever it wanted. To quote Peter Brown again, the Catholic Church in the West had become a closed elite, like a colonising power in underdeveloped territories. It regarded itself as obliged to impose its views, by force if needs be, on an unregenerate world. Reinforced by their aristocratic background, its senator bishops towered above an increasingly passive and uncultivated laity. They were in the habit of telling lay rulers what to do. The Roman legates told Anastasius that he should impose the Catholic faith on his provincials with the firmness of a crusader. End quote. The religious troubles in Constantinople began even before Anastasius was made emperor, when the patriarch of the city, Euphemius, had objected to his nomination as emperor on account of his monophysite leanings, and matters came to a head when he appealed to Felix, the bishop of Rome, for his help. Anastasius had little choice but to depose Euphemius, which he did in 496, and replaced him with Macedonius, who was a compromise candidate because he was still of a Chalcedonian disposition, but a less virulent one than Euphemius, and he didn't mind signing the Henotican. But the people of Constantinople were not happy. Serious rioting broke out in 498. In the Hippodrome, the Greens threw stones at Anastasius, some of them nearly hitting him. The Imperial Guard was called in to restore order, and the man who'd been throwing stones at Anastasius was executed. This just caused further rioting, and the Greens set fire to the bronze gate of the Hippodrome. But eventually, they went home, and order was restored. Peace returned to Constantinople for most of the next 14 years, during which time the Persian War, as recounted in the last episode, happened. The only disturbance was over Anastasius's banning of some of the mob's favourite festivals, which were in fact pagan in origin, including wild animal fights and a festival of the Britae, which involved lascivious dancing. Our records say that Anastasius was criticised for being overly prudish, not liking these activities, but the more likely reason is that he was trying to maintain public law and order, since these pagan festivals, although they were very popular, caused street fighting between Christians and others. The result was yet more rioting on the streets of the capital in 501, in which one source says an illegitimate son of Anastasius's was killed. Fast forward a decade, and by 511, Anastasius was becoming more overtly monophysite. The historian J.B. Berry speculates this was because he was becoming old. He was about 80 years old in 511 and ceased to care so much about putting the interests of the empire above those of his own personal conscience. Whatever the reason, in 511 he made a monophysite, Timothy, patriarch of Constantinople. On top of that, a monophysite monk, Severus of Sozopolis, arrived in Constantinople and was received with honour by Anastasius. He shocked the Chalcedonians by holding services in which the chant of the Trision, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Hosts, 
was chanted with a monophysite edition of Who Was Crucified for Us, which had been introduced at Antioch 50 years before. The new Patriarch Timothy introduced this phrase, which was deeply heretical to the Chalcedonians, into the liturgy in St. Sophia. This was going too far for the people of Constantinople. On Sunday the 4th of November, 512, an Orthodox multitude in St. Sophia drowned with their shouting the chanting of the heretical priests. Fighting broke out between the Imperial Guard and the people. Two days later, a huge collection of citizens formed a camp in the Forum of Constantine. The discontent was now breaking into a serious rebellion to overthrow Anastasius. His statues were pulled down, and the general Ariobindus, who we heard about in the last episode when he fought the Persians, was proclaimed emperor since he was married to Juliana Anasia, the granddaughter of Valentinian III, and could thus claim some connection with the distant house of Theodosius. What Ariobindus's reaction to this was has never been recorded, but another veteran of the Persian Wars, Keller, now the head of the Pricental Armies and Anastasius's most trusted general, advanced with soldiers to enforce the peace. But Anastasius didn't want bloodshed, unlike the huge slaughter that happened when Justinian quelled the famous Nika riots in Constantinople 20 years later, Anastasius told the soldiers to retreat without fighting when they were pelted with stones. Then Anastasius did something which I think earned him a place among the most remarkable of all the Roman emperors. He sent heralds to the mob proclaiming that he was ready to abdicate if they wanted, but he asked them to listen to what he had to say. The next day, a crowd of 100,000 gathered peacefully in the Hippodrome, and Anastasius appeared in the imperial box without his crown, ready to abdicate if they wanted. It's hugely unfortunate that we have no record of what he said, but in some extraordinary way, he calmed the mob and won their confidence. When he finished speaking, the crowd was cheering him and begging him to put on his crown and promising good behaviour. What he said has never been discovered, but there's no record he bribed the rioters or made concessions to them. We can only assume that his oratorical skills must have been as great as those of Cicero or Julius Caesar. But despite his undoubted ability to talk his way out of a problem, his support for the Monophysites now caused yet another revolt, this time a lot more serious. In 513, a general in Thrace called Vitalian raised a rebellion against Anastasius, ostensibly in indignation at the appointment of a Monophysite patriarch in Constantinople. He also claimed his soldiers, so-called federates, were being deprived of provisions by Hippatius, his boss, and the Magister Militum for the Thracian field army. Vitalian is a puzzling character, and historians have always been unsure what his true agenda was. Our few sources on him are inconsistent, with some describing him as a goth, while others mention his mother was the sister of Macedonius II, the Patriarch of Constantinople, from 496 to 511, putting him in the upper echelons of Roman society. Contemporaries described him as very short and with a bad stammer, but also a brave and highly regarded soldier. He commanded the Federate forces in Thrace, which by this time 
Procopius points out, were not barbarian allies such as Alaric's Goths have been, but high-quality Roman cavalry, initially recruited from barbarians under the command of Roman officers, but by Vitalian's time mainly recruited from the Roman populations in Thrace and Anatolia, making them indistinguishable from the regular Roman troops. Vitalian raised a rebellion in Thrace and marched on Constantinople, ostensibly to restore a Chalcedonian patriarch, as I mentioned. His federate troops were joined by crowds of supporters, so that reportedly 50,000 people arrived in front of the gates of Constantinople. Anastasius was caught by surprise, but he didn't want bloodshed. So he instructed the Magister Militum Hypatius to withdraw his troops inside the city walls and set up bronze crosses in front of the city's various gates with inscriptions appealing for order and setting out his view of what the cause of the rebellion was about. We don't know what this view was, but presumably it criticised Vitalian for wanting to promote himself. To avoid bloodshed, Anastasius sent Patricius, a highly regarded general and veteran of the Persian Wars, to Vitalian's camp. Patricius was actually a friend of Vitalian's and persuaded him to send his officers to discuss the cause of their resentment with the emperor personally. Vitalian himself refused to go, suspecting a trap, but his officers met Anastasius, who, displaying the same personal charisma that had won the mob over to his side, persuaded them that everything would be okay, and he understood he needed to tone down his monophysite views. Appeased, the officers returned to Vitalian, who had no choice but to return his soldiers to their barracks. For a while, it looked as if Anastasius's diplomacy had won the day. But unfortunately not. Our sources are vague, but they say Anastasius replaced Hypatius as Magister Militum with a new general, Cyril. This was presumably meant to appease Vitalian, who'd fallen out with Hypatius, but it did the opposite, since Cyril tried to arrest Vitalian, only to be assassinated himself. This was an outrage not to be tolerated. The Senate declared Vitalian an enemy of the Republic in the manner that Stilicho had been so named a hundred years before. An army was sent from Constantinople under the command of another Hypatius, not the same one that Vitalian disliked, but this time a nephew of Anastasius's. His army was said to be 80,000 strong, a ridiculously large number, and I think it was probably much smaller, maybe a tenth of that size. I suggest this because I think the number of troops involved in Vitalian's revolt on both sides were actually very small, just a few thousand on each side, because the bulk of the Roman army was still on the eastern frontier facing the Persians. Our most recent academic research suggests the Pricental armies that were normally stationed near Constantinople were almost certainly now located along the Persian frontier. And this was one reason why Vitalian was successful, because he was up against very few troops facing him in the west. Our sources are vague, but Hypatius is credited with a victory over Vitalian in the autumn of 513, followed by a disaster in which the Roman army was said to have been driven over a cliff by trickery in the dark, assisted apparently by black magic, leading to the loss 
of 60,000 men, again, a massively exaggerated number. Hypatius himself jumped into the sea, but was rescued and taken to Vitalian as a hostage. Even if Hypatius's force was in fact just a few thousand men, this was still an unmitigated disaster for Anastasius. It allowed Vitalian to march on Constantinople a second time with his federates, aided now by a fleet of 200 ships which entered the Bosphorus. This time, Anastasius caved in. He promoted him to Magister Militum for Thrace and promised to convene a general council at Heraclea the following year, in July 515, to discuss monophysitism at which he agreed the Pope's representative should be present. He also promised to restore all the Chalcedonian bishops who'd been replaced by monophysite ones. It was a bitter humiliation for Anastasius, but he bounced back remarkably quickly because all his promises were hollow. The council never took place. No monophysite bishops were replaced. In fact, nothing changed. Furious, he'd been tricked. Vitalian marched for a third time on Constantinople and occupied the northern shore of the Golden Horn, known as Sikai and now known as Galata. But this time Anastasius was ready for him. He'd appointed his trusted finance minister Marinus with a fleet and army to counter Vitalian. There was a naval battle at the mouth of the Golden Horn in which Vitalian's ships were burned, apparently with a chemical compound that was the forerunner to the famous Greek fire that would save Constantinople many times in centuries to come. Marinus landed at Sicai, defeated Vitalian's land forces, and captured his chief lieutenant, Tarak, who was burned to death. Vitalian fled to Thrace, where he went into hiding, and disappeared for the next three years. He would, however, make a reappearance after Anastasius's death, which we'll hear more about in the next episode, but Anastasius had finally won a resounding victory. Not long afterwards, he died on the night of July the 8th to 9th, 518. He was 87 years old, the oldest Roman emperor in history. He makes Joe Biden and Donald Trump look like spring chickens. And he left a treasury with an astonishing surplus of £320,000 of gold, enough to have paid Attila the Hun's annual tribute for 150 years. I find his reign both fascinating and frustrating. Frustrating because we know so little about it, but fascinating because he achieved so much. In my opinion, He is the missing link between the empire that watched its western half die in the 5th century and the empire of Justinian that reconquered it in the 6th. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And in the next episode, which will be in two weeks' time on the 9th of December, we'll move on to the great story that you've all been waiting for 
Of course, it's the story of Justinian and the reconquest of the West. And in the meantime, if you liked the podcast, you must go and get a free ebook from my website at nickholmesauthor.com. Link in the show notes. It's about the death of the Byzantine Empire at the Battle of Manticurt in 1071 and how this caused the Crusades. If you like this podcast, I guarantee you'll love this book. So do head on there right now. Thanks for listening and see you next time.